It's perhaps not something we think much about until we need it. But where we live when we get older will become a priority, especially when our physical and social needs dictate our choices. Today, those choices have become much more palatable and even enticing when it comes to luxury later living, also known as senior residences. The demand for these high-end homes designed with community, health, and wellness in mind continues to rise. It is also where WATG's Don St. Amand comes in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast. I'm Monita Rajpal. As managing principal focusing on residential and senior or later living projects, Don St. Amand recognizes that later living is an opportunity to up the ante on the fundamentals and design when it comes to creating spaces with purpose. It is that kind of thinking that Don has always found himself drawn to, especially how form and function can enhance the health and well-being of those who will end up occupying those places. With over 30 years of experience and a career that has largely been focused on residential, landmark, high-rise, and urban density projects, for Don, new concepts and design was something he grew up exploring. It was an imagination fostered by days of playing near his home in the suburbs of Los Angeles and getting lost in the magic of making music. Don joins me from the WATG studio in L.A. Don St. Amon, what a pleasure it is to meet you. Great to have this opportunity to talk about my favorite subject, which is either me or architecture. I can't figure <laughs> out which. <laughs> and this is going to have both. This is about yes. both of those favorite <laughs> subjects of yours. Let's start out by asking, you know, how would you describe your career path thus far? Well, in a lot of ways, it was, it felt like destiny and kind of my mind looking back is just all the things fell into place as I was growing up where I went to school here in Southern California and all ending up here at uh, WTG in Los Angeles, Southern California, where all these great uh, modernist architects uh, started their careers has had a big impact. You're now focusing your work on later living. What made you decide to make that switch? Or was it more well, of an evolution? Actually, the, uh, it was about mid-career that um, I was uh, working with a, a client here in Mid-Wilshire who was looking at doing high-rise work and uh, turned out that they wanted to do a senior living project. And so the client invited me to sit down and, and sketch some unit plans and, and talk about the project. And I met uh, a very influential uh, operator, uh, Watermark, probably one of the more luxurious uh, senior living operators in, in, uh, in the U.S. And of course, they've done a few work overseas, but we connected right away. Uh, particularly because I understood the residential side of senior living. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our competitors, architects, think about it from a healthcare standpoint. But this focus and this particular client was really focused on, on basically how you handle residential and all the nice things that go with it. After all, it's a different typology than, let's say, residential, but different than hospitality, whereas hospitality people will stay for a short period of time and for senior living, you're going to stay for a longer period of time. So you have to take that in consideration that their friends and social groups will be part of this senior living community. So there's a, there's some difference between the two, but it really came back to the roots of my multifamily experience over the years. With that, when you're designing these spaces, what do you believe are the fundamentals, the must-haves? The overriding 
concern that all senior living and any senior they're aging is that their social group tends to be diminished. People pass away or they move away. The kids might move away. And so loneliness is is a big concern. Even with multifamily residential, you know, socialization is super important. But as they say, loneliness is the biggest killer with senior living. And there was a quote that I heard a while back where it says, uh, one, one expert said, being lonely is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day, just to point out how unhealthy being alone and not having a social group, particularly as couples age and one may pass away or divorce or whatever the reason is for separation that becomes an issue. And so what we look for in both our multifamily residential and our and our senior living is to find occasions in architecture and through programming uh, where we encourage that socialization amongst residences. It highlights, doesn't it, the connection and how important that connection is between architecture and wellness. There's one particular book that I, I've read years and years ago that really affected how I think about it. It's called Healing Spaces. It's by Esther Sternberg. And uh, as a medical doctor uh, doing research at the University of uh, Arizona in Tucson, she wrote about her experiences and what she was seeing through architecture, how people heal, how fast they heal. And I think one of the aspects that uh, she mentions is she talks about the early architects, uh, Alvar Aalto, um, some of the others in the early 1900s, where they, at one point they were building a lot of sanitariums. They found that in uh, with certain architecture, architecture, which let's say you had a window in your room and you're facing a brick wall compared the healing process to one who had views over, you know, biophilia, forests, et cetera, et cetera. They found that the healing process was much quicker when you had views and when you had that opportunity to connect to biophilia. And I think a lot of it has to do with diverting your attention away from whatever pain you're having. A lot of seniors have multiple issues, healthcare issues. And if you can divert that attention away to something else, there's certainly a kind of a less stringent uh, impact on stress. And so that early work was uh, very important in my career, understanding the views, light, and and just the socialization aspect. And if you overlay that to the architecture, I think you're going to be more successful in terms of how people heal, how people feel, uh, how they socialize, and just the general well-being. Is it a sense of responsibility that you feel as an architect, too, to get it right? In this scenario, in this sense, I guess? Of course. Uh, you know, it's it's the commercial part of it, which is to have repeat clients and so the success of your project and how fast it leases up, how quickly people renew their leases, et cetera. In the case of multifamily, that is one marker on determining success. But the other one, which is a little between the lines here, is, is how you make people feel. How do they respond to the architecture? The architecture is a support for the overall uh, project, but the programming and how people filter through that is very important. In my uh, college years at USC here in Southern California, the Dean of Architecture, very important architect here in Southern California, Quincy Jones, he would frame the profession of architecture, architects themselves, as a focusing lens for all the various disciplines that come together. And it's that point, how you focus, what information, what noise you exclude, what, what things you think are paramount to making a successful project that really yields the successful results. And so early in my career, uh, actually before I started my career, I was very influenced by Quincy Jones and, and his ideas of what architects should do. It's not about me. It's not about others. It's about 
bringing the team together and the best idea wins. And that's certainly uh, interesting enough to come to uh, WATG over the last few months and find that a very similar way of going to WATG way is very much about about that person and how, how they feel. So feel very lucky to land a position here at WATG and to be able to take those past experiences and bring them to fruition with our future work here. You grew up in LA, in a suburb of LA. What was that like for you? Growing up, born and raised in, or born in, in Long Beach, uh, my family lived in Downey, which is a suburb about 11 miles southeast here of downtown Los Angeles. And we were originally, when they bought the house, it was overlooking a beautiful orange grove. And then over a period of time, that got developed and all of a sudden the orange groves disappeared, but it left a, a giant field and also against the Rio Hondo River, which is basically a, a channel to take the excess uh, rains, et cetera, away so we don't have flooding. But there was a diversionary channel, which they would divert the water, let it settle back into the aquifer. Very much Downey was on the aquifer at that time for supplying domestic water. But it was a great opportunity to kind of play Tom Sawyer out in the uh, out in this uh, settlement pond where we'd build rafts and we'd have fun, build forts, we'd build tunnels, we would do all sorts of things that kids do. But I, I felt at that point, wow, there's something about three-dimensional thinking about how you put things together, what tools you use to make that happen, and how do you plan that going forward? So early in my childhood, I, I was uh, noticing that I've kind of had this skill, uh, always tested very uh, in the high range of 3D thinking uh, spaces simulation, et cetera. So that was a good start in terms of where I thought I was going to go, but I didn't know what architects did. I had no idea until my mother brought home a book that she found on one of these giveaway tables, but it was written by Olga Wright, who was the last wife of Frank Lloyd Wright. And she put together the book after he passed away, which is a beautiful edition of his early work prior to him coming to Los Angeles. So that was a big influence and it opened my eyes. Oh, that's what an architect does. And funny thing was that it was a good fit to where I saw myself going. So that really started off my early career trying to think in those directions. Later on, when I got to middle school, we were fortunate to have industrial arts programs, metal shop, wood shop, also drafting class. And I thought, wow, this is great. I can build things. I can plan my buildings, plan what I see three-dimensionally by drawing. And so I was very much attracted to that. So together with that background, living in Downey next to those settlement ponds and all the fun things that we had, my time at USC and, and my mother exposing me to what architecture was, was really the foundation to, to what I am today. How did your folks respond to this desire to build and create and design? You know, they were very supportive. I'm certainly, when I sat down with my father and he said, well, where do you want to go to college? And I said, USC. And he kind of choked because the tuition was pretty high. I think it was <laughs> 1200 bucks back then, but that was a lot of money back then. But it was one of the premier programs in Southern California, the long, long legacy of, of architects that came out of USC, the modernist movement, et cetera. It was the right place for the right time. And certainly my family was very supportive. There was no one in my family who had thought about architecture. Mainly my family was in the medical professions. My father, a doctor, my mother, support, a support staff person for medical profession. So they didn't really know. My grandmother in her older years, she said, Don, why don't you become a truck driver? There's a lot of money in that. And I kind of passed <laughs> that off, said, well... I think I'm going to do something different than be a truck driver. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> they were supportive, but I think they were in wonder. It's like, what is this kid doing? <laughs> yeah. Being at USC, what was that experience like for you? Well, I got to tell you, we had a great football team back then. So that was super <laughs> important. That was a Pete Carroll days. Uh, and before that, it was a great opportunity to really delve into into the campus, understand the architecture on that campus. They had architecture 
when I was going to school was not so much in this sort of themed uh, gothic collegiate architecture that you see there today, but it was very much about the modernists. So, you know, Pierre Koenig, uh, Quincy Jones, uh, uh, I.M. Pei, many of the the uh, Cape Black Cape architects were practicing their architecture and, and had many completed projects on campus. So it was a great opportunity, eye-opening experience to see how each approached the campus, how they intertwined their buildings, try to create social experiences. It was all a great opportunity to dive into Southern California architecture. Tell me about an experience with an exacto knife. Well, there was a professor. <laughs> he was Scottish gentleman. Uh, it was my, his name was Mark Turnbull, and this is in my second year and. Uh, there was uh, four instructors in the design class, and he said, "All right, so we're gonna we're gonna start working on a single family home, and part of the exercise is to build models. But I want you to think uh, carefully about how you place walls, how you place roofs, what views you create with windows, etc." And he put up a picture of a dinghy. This is a um, a small boat, small sailboat that was tied up on the shore somewhere in Scotland. And he said, I want you to look at this and I want you to tell me anything that you see on this boat that's not functional. And we all raised our hands. Oh, we've got wood over here. We've got these tie downs over here. He said, no, those are all functional. I, he said, I don't think you can find anything on this boat that's not functional, but yet it's beautiful. Is it not? And we all agreed. Yeah, it certainly is. And so what he would do when we built these models, he would sit with us. Now, did you remember the lesson about the about the boat? And uh, sure, sure, sure. And then he'd go through, now, what's this wall here? Uh, uh, well, I'm not quite sure what the wall it just seemed like I needed. All right, let's cut it out. And he'd take his exacto knife and he would cut it out. After you spent night after night after night, weeks on end building these models, he would just cut them out. But you know what? That left a, a very big impression on the students and, and certainly myself. And I always remember about the functionality of every component we put into our architecture. And certainly, if you look at the work that WTG does with the resort projects in particular, your arrival sequence, and a lot of them is some of my favorite resort projects projects in the world, frame the view what's beyond. And there's no wall between you and that view. And that whole rival sequence is very much what those teachings were at USC. How did that, as well as growing up in California, influence and inform your design practices to this day? You know, certainly... Back back when I was practicing, uh, early days of practicing you know, unit planning with my residential projects, you know, there were a lot of rooms. There was a dining room, there was a living room, and the kitchen was separate. And there was all these walls that were kind of in place. But, you know, that was kind of what the buyers or the renters were expecting. But as time went on, as we started to take those walls out and, and sort of think about how we socialize, uh, you know, preparing a meal, et cetera, and everybody and their brother now thinks about that open concept, you know, in terms of layout. But I have to say that a lot of that I think is due to uh, architects thinking about how the early modernists here in Southern California eliminated walls, had flowing spaces between one to the other. And certainly Frank Roy Wright, even in his early years, is very much about those flowing spaces. I, th I think about the Roby House and very much how those spaces flow together and how that influenced Southern California architects, but also the profession, especially in the multifamily area here in Southern California and throughout the world now. What kind of personality traits or characteristics do you believe are necessary for a good architect? There is something to be said about translating intuition, translating emotions into 3D design, right? But what are the real characteristics do you believe from an emotional and psychological perspective do you believe are important for an architect? I tell my staff this. I said, listen, you can work by yourself if you're designing a phone booth. 
not many on this call remember what a phone booth is, but let's <laughs> yeah. say you're designing a very small structure. You can take that on yourself. But when you get to a big project, all of a sudden you find yourself needing to work with a team. And so when you work with the team, you want to pull all of the good thinking, all of the, the hard work together from the team. And as I said earlier, the best idea wins. And I, I certainly think that a certain amount of patience, but team building skills and the ability to step back and say, well, that's a better idea than the idea I have. Let's go with that. And I think where ego intersects that team building skill is probably the essence of architecture. Certainly all of us in the design field think about our work. We're very proud of it. And there's a certain amount of ego that goes with it, which I believe is healthy. But you also have to park that when it comes time to you know, working in a team environment so that everybody's included, but that the best idea wins. And when you talk about that, when someone junior, very junior comes out of school, says, I have a great idea. All right, let's hear it. And you think, oh, that is a great idea. Let's go with it. Not only do you find the best idea to move forward to present to your client, but also you build that young person's confidence and moving forward. So they're not afraid to be timid and bring up what their best idea is. So I think there's a there's an intersection, again, of ego, intersection of team building skills and sort of holding the mantle of the best idea wins, I think is super important for the profession in general. Where did that come from for you? Where did you learn that? Was Did you have siblings growing up? I did, but actually that probably came more out of sitting uh, early in my career, sitting with a team and saying, my idea is the best idea. And then someone <laughs> said, well, no, it's not. Here it is. <laughs> you got smacked There's around humility a for you. <laughs> a little humility goes a long ways. And I certainly thought, well, you know, that person's right. Let's put that aside. And certainly you want to present your ideas in the best, the best way possible. But why is it a better idea? What is the criteria behind that? What is the critical thinking? Graphically, you're able to express yourself with those great ideas. And those are all skills that architects uh, need to have, whether or not you're drawing by hand, or if you're working with computer-aided design or Revit or any of the three-dimensional things that we can use now, it always goes back to that same idea. How do you present it graphically so that one understands why you're making those moves? So it can be critiqued and it can be thought as just the best idea, but also prepare yourself for the client who's going to ask those critical questions. Is this the best idea? Are there other ideas that you consider? What are those other options? And so, yeah, having a design process that invites uh, the best ideas, I think that's uh, very important. Speaking of that design process, what is the very first thing you do when you have an idea? Do you take pen to paper or is it a design on a computer? Well, uh, you're talking to a dinosaur here, so um, <laughs> hardly. Besides the uh, the chisel and the granite, uh, typically I pull out a pen, a piece of trace paper, and I start <laughs> thinking about the diagrams. How do you put yeah. it together? Because just the way I think and preparing for with a client or preparing some sort of strategy session with my fellow coworkers here at WTG, typically just brainstorm, put a lot of ideas down on paper, scribble it up cross this out, put this over here. I think today's technology would be similar to using a mural board, for instance, how mm -hmm. we put ideas up and we look at those and we get together as a team. But my first process is to get those ideas out very quickly so that I can be critical of, are those good ideas? And then evaluate it based on criteria. So pen to paper is always something important. I'm a copious uh, note taker. I jot everything down. I think there's a tactile feeling about pen to paper that I grew up with and that I still retain today. What are some of the projects that you've worked on that stay with you? Looking at um, sort of the luxury end of residential has always been a fascination for me. Early in my career at my previous company, I worked on the first four seasons residences, which was in Jakarta, Indonesia. 
I spent uh, quite a few years in Southeast Asia working. It was really a, a great understanding of how the well-heeled folks live. Before that, it was more of kind of market rate, uh, four-star environments, et cetera. But when I got to Indonesia or Southeast Asia, most of my clients were very friendly. They were down to earth, but they kind of showed me how the people that are well healed, how, what luxury looks like and understanding from their perspective, what their environment could be really influenced me in a big way. A little bit later in that career, I was fortunate enough to work on a Peninsula Hotel, which is also in Jakarta, Indonesia. And uh, there was a gentleman at Peninsula, the design and construction head, John Miller, and he invited me to go to Hong Kong and tour his project there, his uh, the Peninsula Hotel, which that, at that point was probably one of the most luxurious hotels in the world. And he taught me a few things about the 360 around the guests, how they arrive, you know, who knows their name at the front door, how the services work being able to see and to be seen, the whole rival sequence around high T, the Bentleys parked out in front. And then all of that back of house, which typically you would think is just nothing more than staff and, and utility. But he said, no, we think about our staff in a whole different way. We treat them as well as we can. The back of house is as important as the front of house. And when you treat that staff correctly, you'll find you'll get the best staff that remember the guests that are coming into the hotel and remember those names, et cetera. And so on my luxury projects, residential or branded residential, et cetera, there's a focus also on how that staff, how that back of house, how they provide services, how important it is for their well-being as well as the guests. So that was an early uh, influence. For me, it just fits right in in terms of how you think about it, whether it's senior living or if it's multifamily or branded residences or the like. It's really about the guests, those services, and how comfortable they feel with those staff and how they interact. One of the things I admire so much about architects, your profession, is that you are problem solvers. You are looking for solutions, and you think in terms of possibilities of what could be. You don't really think of constraints, and it's about, let's see how we can make this work. Are you like that outside of work, too? <laughs> Well, to start with your statement, so I think, yes, we're problem solvers. The worst thing to hand an architect is out in the countryside, there's this green field. It's totally flat. There's no trees. Okay, draw me something. And we <laughs> hate that. We want constraints. We want things that tell us, oh, there's a hill, there's a tree. When I took my design examination to get my license in California, the problem was design a firehouse, a fire uh, department where the fire trucks reside but also there's utility payment. So you want to pay your water bill. And then there's a bunch of trees on the site. And then also it's very hilly. So with those constraints, you had 12 hours. And back in those days, it was pen to paper. You got to come up with a solution and you think about those constraints. But the constraints is what the response of those constraints is what makes the interesting design solution to that. When we look at these constraints, we come up with multiple options. Typically, we like to look at, okay, what's really outside there? What can we do to push the envelope? What are we thinking about in terms of new technology? Uh, how are we embracing uh, new materials and those kind of things? You always think about those. What are forms that we couldn't do years ago with drawing pen to paper or is very difficult when we drew in pencil and we created blue line prints out of ammonia uh, machines, et cetera. Now we have a lot more freedom in terms of how architecture can flow. You look at the, the likes of a Frank Gehry or others that are very much had 
discarded that sort of very rectilinear approach and started thinking freely. And it was till later when they, after they were doing several of these projects that the technology finally came around. But that freed us all up in terms of the ability to think outside the box. I mean, literally outside the box to be more flowing, more thinking about our response. And then certainly as we move forward, with quantum computing and AI and all the things that will allow us to go from design directly into manufacturing, which has already started, but it'll be stronger, I think, coming in the future, that now there's an opportunity to really think outside the box and really start thinking about breaking away from rectilinear design and thinking about other aspects that can create architects that responds to the environment better, that responds to solar energy, that responds to views and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I can imagine then at home, if there if an issue comes up, if there's a problem, you say, okay, what are what are our constraints? What do we have to deal with here? And then figure out the solutions from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, home it's a different situation. I have a table saw and I have a drill press and all those things want to be straight. <laughs> My wife calls it the MacGyver approach. Right. So, hey, we have a cat that's trying to bust out of our window here. <laughs> what can you put out in front so the cat uh, uh, stays in the house, but you can still open the window and get air? So I have to think about all those different solutions and certainly the creativity comes into it at the home front. <laughs> what keeps you interested in continuously growing in your career? I think working with um, younger staff or less experienced staff as they get out of school and, and relating to back when I was in the same position, what are the things that they need to learn and to know? How can I inspire them? How can I put them at ease so that they're free to speak their minds? And I think that earlier conversation about the best idea wins is probably the one aspect of my career that brings me to mentoring the younger people in, in the firm as they as they grow through their careers and to show them, hey, have you been out looking around Los Angeles about the great architecture? Have you looked at this space? Have you looked at this architecture? What is the history of architecture? And certainly one of my favorite uh, courses at USC was the history of architecture. Mm. And certainly the focus here in Southern California of what these early modernists did. I think a lot of the young people that come to school here in, in Southern California haven't really uh, gone out and, and looked at the architecture, may not have been aware of it. And so I'm always trying to say, get out there and look, get out there, socialize with other architects, even if they're with different firms, learn about the profession, what are people doing? How do they go about their work? So I would say more in my later years here, it's, it's really focusing on bringing up the next generation to build on top of what I've learned. It's such a great privilege to have someone like you to be able to bounce ideas off to learn from and to know that you're there as a mentor to help guide younger career hopefuls as well into what could be a very successful career for them. Before I let you go, Don, I'm going to do some quick fire questions. It's going to be fun, I promise. So just don't spend too much time thinking about it. We'll just okay. have some fun. Okay. If you could vacation anywhere in the world, where would it be? Out on a lake in Maine. <laughs> nice. What are two things still on your bucket list? Well, let's see. Um, certainly want to uh, create a super high rise. That would be that would be fun. Uh, the tallest building I've done is about sixty some stories, and so uh, if we get into ninety to the hundred and twenty story building, that that would be a fantastic opportunity. And certainly the travel. I've been lucky in my career. I've traveled pretty much across the planet, and not spent a lot of time in Africa. I would like to understand more about indigenous architecture and certainly the travels to the cultures who have functionally built their homes, whether it be straw or mud or, or whatever. That's really a, a learning experience because, again, anything in that mud hut is functional. There's nothing decorative. 
And so I've I've always been focusing on whether it was Balinese architecture, which is full of embellishments, et cetera, versus, you know, the indigenous architecture of the Southwest here, the Pueblos, et cetera, all these who have built these structures about functionalism and how there's beauty within that functionalism. So I would say travel is probably the second thing that I would like to spend more time doing in my career. How do you like to spend your free time? Well, let's see. The free time is um, very much into music. I, When I was in college, I learned to play keyboards and spent a lot of time uh, in bands, uh, working nightclub circuits, and et cetera. And it's something that I continue today, not so much with bands, but certainly my musical progress and, and learning and writing songs and writing music has always been a passion. I probably spent an hour to two hours a day at my keyboards and and just drifting away, thinking about the ability just to be as free and as creative as I possibly could be without constraints. No one's listening to me. No one says, hey, we have to learn 10 songs for this set tomorrow. Just be free with those headphones. No one can hear me. My wife doesn't have to hear the same old song of mistakes I make over and over again. <laughs> so I do spend a lot of time with music, which I believe is very much part of architecture. That they, A lot of architects play instruments. Some of my closest friends that are architects play instruments and occasionally I get the chance to play with them. But there is a certain part of the brain, I believe, in a lot of architects that goes back and forth between music, cadence, volume, dynamic, creativity, thinking outside the box, creating new sounds, very much, again, uh, part of the same part of the brain that the architects think in. Is there a particular genre that you like? Oh, blues and jazz. What did you love playing with as a kid? You know, in Downey, this is where uh, North American Rockwell had their their large assembly area, and they built uh, most of the Apollo spacecraft. And when I was a Boy Scout, uh, we toured North American Rockwell. And I remember walking through one of the back rooms that they had a large factory area. And here was all the heat shields for all of the Apollo spacecraft. And I was very much focused on the space program because it took you to a different environment. It was from the environment that we know today. And what's the fantasy out there to getting to these new worlds? And part of that was also, you know, learning to scuba dive and getting into Laguna Beach here was beautiful scuba diving back then. And with just being in that different world to experience space and environments in a different way. And what are those constraints that you have to think about? You have to think about heat shields. You have to think about spacesuits. And, you know, because this is a, not a good environment for humans to be in. So something could kill you right away. But certainly with scuba diving and, and being in those environments, the protection that you had to have those constraints to appreciate those environments, I think had a connection to architecture as well. What's your favorite drink? Uh, water. <laughs> 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 but my wife is a, a connoisseur of wine. So we always have some very nice wines on hand and collections. So wine and scotch maybe and water. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Oh, boy. You know, I think that's that's a really interesting question because through the travels, being exposed to multiple cuisines, wow, wonderful place here in Southern California to live. And of course, across the U.S., I remember going to London uh, early before I became an architect and, ah, the food is awful. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Last time I was in London, it's like complete opposite. What happened here? All these great chefs, all these various cuisines. Before the pandemic, uh, we were in Italy and uh, we loved the Italian food. But after a week and a half of the same Italian food, ah, let's go find Indian food or let's go <laughs> let's go find some other cuisine. I think the variety of that food is is probably where I am. And it's interesting how that 
how you think about those seniors living day after day after day at the same dining room within the community of senior living, mm-hmm. how multiple cuisines, how we try to prepare, not unlike hotels that uh, WTG does, where you have one main kitchen, but you can create multiple cuisines out of that same kitchen, but also how you locate that senior living. The site planning on is super important for senior living, especially as the baby boomer generation comes out, where if you're in an urban environment where you have ability to go to all these different restaurants, walking distance, et cetera. So I think that, uh, yeah, multiple cuisines, great food, any kind of cuisine, you know, sushi and Mexican food and all the things that we can get here in Southern California in a very quality way uh, is probably my hot ticket. In which subject were you the worst at at school? Oh, structures. (laughs) What? Structures. Well, a lot of architects, uh, you know, it's the left brain and it's the right brain. And, you know, when you get to uh, running the numbers, et cetera, you know, there's a little bit of not that we can't do it. It's just do we have to do it. So, um yeah, I, uh, I I passed my structural classes. I did graduate with a degree, but then when I when it came time to take my examination and we had structural class, I had to take that one twice. So I would say that's my worst subject was structure. Fortunately, there are many good structural engineers that I can work with and we can brainstorm and work together so I don't have to do uh, <laughs> the structural engineering. <laughs> what about what subject were you best at? Oh, probably design and history. Hmm. Um, and today, uh, I spent a lot of time reading about history of all sorts of subjects and watching the History Channel or going to museums and understanding what came when, understanding timelines. They say history repeats itself if you don't understand what it is. And that's something that I think of and something I've extended to my kids. And hopefully they'll also think in the same ways. Let's understand our history before we make the decisions for the future. Don, this has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time to speak to me today about this. And thank you for your great questions, Monita. That was Don St. Amand joining me from Los Angeles. You've been listening to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast. I'm Monita Rajpal. Thank you for listening.